Go Big Red. Come on. Come on. Awesome, awesome, awesome. My name is Andrew. I'm one of the pastors on staff. We are glad to have you here. As much as we are excited about a big win over the fighting Illini yesterday, Lovey Smith and his, uh, his team from Illinois. Glad you're here. Grab your Bible. Turn to the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, a little more than halfway through your Bible. You'll find a collection of names, the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's the first book of the New Testament. And if you don't have a Bible, please Raise your hand and allow one of my friends to bring you a Bible. This Bible that we have is a gift from our church to you. We want everyone to have the Word of God in their hands and in their homes. And so we'd love for you unapologetically raise your hand and say, hey, I'd like a Bible. If you know somebody who needs a Bible, that's fair reason to raise your hand as well. We had an amazing testimony this last week. An individual who wrote into the church and said, I had my Bible sitting on my dash and uh, ended up with an opportunity to give it to somebody else in need and how God used that was fantastic. So we are all about getting the word of God in everyone's hands and in their homes. We're going to jump in here in just a minute in week two of our repeat series, The Power of One. By repeat, I mean we've done this series before, about a year ago. But these are four new topics with the same direction that we are excited about. So last week, Pastor Cody talked about the power of one discovery. And today we're going to talk about the power of one another. But before we do, there are two things that I want to share with you that you need to know about women. October 11th and 12th, we have a women's conference here at CBC. Make sure that you mark it in your calendars and plan on coming and bring some of your friends with you October 11th and 12th. Guys, as a husband and as a dad, I want to encourage you, I want to inspire you, I want to implore you to make sure that the ladies in your lives attend this awesome conference. It's going to be worth it, and it's going to be an amazing time for them together. My wife is excited about it. Uh, we were talking about it just this morning. The other thing I want to turn your attention to is today, from 4 o'clock to 7 o'clock, we have our Family Fun Fest at Grandpa's Farm. Each one of you should have received a card. If not, there are cards on your seat. Come out from 4 to 7. This is one of the most beloved times as a church that we get to share together every year. This is how we can make a big church feel a little bit smaller. We we have three services here at Country Bible Church, not including our online community. We have at 8 o'clock, 9, 15, and 11. This is a chance for everybody to come together at one place for a lot of fun. There's a lot of great things. There's going to be food, a lot of activities. And so please, 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 two things. Plan on coming and pray like crazy that the sun comes out and dries up all the, all the rain. Amen. In Oregon, we don't have that prayer. We just work through the rain. Here, we have that option. All right. I want to share with you a story as we jump into week two in the power of one. This story is an article that I found on CNN, and it is pretty amazing. On July 23rd, 1969, as Apollo 11 hurtled back towards Earth, there was a problem. A problem only a kid could solve. It sounds like something out of a movie, but that's what it came down to as Apollo 11 sped back towards Earth after landing on the moon in 1969. It was around 10 p.m. at night on July 23rd, and 10-year-old boy Greg Force was at home with his mom and three brothers. His father, Charles Force, was at work. Charles Force was the director of the NASA tracking station in Guam, where the family was living. The Guam tracking station was to play a critical role in the return of Apollo 11 to Earth. A powerful antenna there connected NASA communications with Apollo 11, and the antenna was the only way for NASA to make its last communications with the astronauts before splashdown. But at the last minute on that night, a bearing in the antenna failed, rendering the antenna 
nearly useless. To properly replace the bearing would have required dismantling the entire antenna, and there was simply not enough time. So Charles Force thought of a creative solution. If he could get more grease around the failed bearing, it would probably be fine. The only problem was nobody at the station had an arm small enough to actually reach in through the two and a half inch opening and pack grease around the bearing. And that's when Greg was called in to save the day. Charles Force sent someone out to his home to pick Greg up. And once at the tracking station, Greg reached into the tiny hole and packed grease around the failed bearing. It worked and the station was able to successfully complete its communications role in the mission. Apollo 11 splashed down safely the next day. At the time, Greg didn't think that what he was doing was a big deal. And 40 years later, he's still pretty modest about the mission. That's all I did was put my hand in and put grease on it, he says. If he hadn't been there, NASA would not have been able to make its last communication with the mission before splashdown. My dad explained to me why it was important, he said, but it kind of caught me by surprise afterwards, all the attention. The attention came from the media and even the astronauts themselves. Greg's small but important part in 11 was a story told by news outlets around the world. He even got a nice thank you note from astronaut Neil Armstrong, whom he met when Armstrong went on a tour of NASA stations with the other astronauts to thank the staff for the mission. To Greg, reads the note, which Armstrong wrote on a newspaper clipping of Greg's story, with thanks for your help on Apollo 11, Neil Armstrong. Wow. Can you imagine the significance of this moment? The power literally in the hand of a 10-year-old little boy. That an entire mission of landing on the moon and returning safely was dependent on being able to communicate with NASA. And the form of communication was a high-powered antenna in Guam. To have this Bearing fail, and Charles Forth, the director of communications for NASA, looking at the problem, the levity of the situation, the emotion, the consideration that would have had to go into all this, the lives that were at stake. And he called into action his 10-year-old little son who was sitting at home with his three-year-old or with his three other brothers and his mom. For this little boy to come and to take grease and reach his hand into this two and a half inch opening to pack the bearing with grease so that it would sustain through the remainder of the mission was what led to a successful return. It was the matter of life and death, the trajectory of how NASA would be perceived from that moment on with regards to this mission. And it all lied in the hands of someone else that they had no control of. I want to present to you this morning as we jump in today in the power of one that I believe with all my heart the power of one another can change the trajectory of our eternity. That the power of one another can change the trajectory of our lives. That the power of one another can change the trajectory of our relationships that we need the power of one another and that we are called to be another for someone. And so today, church, we're going to spend our few minutes together 
discovering and learning about the power of one another. And Father, I pray for our time this morning. I invite you to come and move and have your being here. I ask that you would meet us where we're at and move us to where you want us to go. God, I thank you for this series that reminds us about the one. You are the one. And that the the impact, the power in the number one is significant. And today as we study about one another, I pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts, capture our minds. I pray that we might be malleable and that you would make us all the more into the likeness of your image this morning. Father, now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be received as a gift that is holy and pleasing to you alone, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. In Matthew chapter 5, it is the precursor for the rest of the gospel. It is Jesus' first sermon, his first public address, otherwise known as the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus up on the side of a mountain with the disciples that he had called at that time begins to share the heart of the Father with the community, and it was a broad community. If you read in Matthew chapter 4, just before that, you'll learn that the region known as the Decapolis or the 10 areas was represented. And this was a, a melting pot of individuals, a hodgepodge, a collection of individuals of haves and have-nots, of social elites and social outcasts, of Jews and Gentiles, of men and of women that have come together collectively to learn from Jesus. Notoriety and fame of Jesus is spreading, and in many cases, infamy of Jesus is taking a hold of the communities at large and at hand, and they want to come and see firsthand for themselves what this rabbi is all about, what this teaching that Jesus is bringing is all about, these miracles and these signs and these wonders are all about. And Jesus, as he descends the mountain and he begins his public ministry, Many miracles begin to take place, not the least of which is as they cross over the sea, there's a paralyzed man on a mat brought in front of the crowd and to Jesus. There Jesus will say the unthinkable, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees begin to murmur and people in the crowd begin to talk amongst themselves and Jesus, knowing their hearts, knowing the conversation that they're sharing, challenges their perspectives and he says, what's easier, to, to forgive this man or to make him walk? But I'll tell you what, I'll do both. Take up your mat and go home, walk. You think that would have caught the attention of the people in the community? Guy comes paralyzed, brought by a bunch of friends, all of a sudden he walks home. After that, Jesus is walking with his disciples, and he comes across the tax collector named Matthew. And he asks him to leave his high-paying, high-powered position and to devote himself to a life of ministry. Matthew will leave behind what he's done for the government, and he will follow Jesus along with Simon Peter and Andrew and James and John, sons of Zebedee. And collectively, they'll continue in ministry. And as they do... A synagogue ruler by the name of Jairus will come. And you can read this account in parallel passages in, in Mark 8 and in Luke 5. Jairus will come to Jesus, broken, desperate, willing to do anything for the life of his daughter. 
And he comes to Jesus, he says, teacher, my daughter is dead, but if you'll come with me, you have the power to bring her back to life. As Jesus and his disciples were walking with Jairus toward his home where a funeral procession was already in place, where mourning was already taking place, where paid professional mourners were working, Jesus is encountered by a a woman who'd been subject to bleeding for a dozen years and by merely touching the edge of his garment, she is healed. And not only is she healed physically, but she is now able to be restored into community. She will no longer be considered unclean in the context of her culture. And so this healing is much more than just a physical healing. It's a relational healing. It's It's an identity healing. Jesus will stop and he'll ask this question, who touched me? And his disciples, a bunch of adolescent guys in their late teens and early 20s are going to snicker and say, Jesus, are you serious? Do you see the thousands of people that are gathered around trying to to get a glimpse of you, trying to, to reach out and touch you? You're famous, Jesus. What do you mean? Who touched you? And Jesus says, no, no, no. I know that power left my body. And this woman would fall in fear and confess it was me. I did it. I touched you. Jesus says, your faith is healed. You go, you're restored. Do you think, do you think that Jesus healing a paralyzed man and now restoring a woman who had been subject to bleeding and it cost her everything in community, do you think word was beginning to spread? Do you think his fame was growing, that people were were coming because they were curious and wanted to know all the more? Jesus will come to the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler, and he'll tell the people to be quiet, to stop crying that she's only asleep. And they'll, they'll snicker at Jesus and they'll, they'll mock him and say, what kind of an idiot is this that says that she's just sleeping? We've already prepared her for, like the, the process for preparing her for burial is already underway. And Jesus will tell everyone to remain outside and he'll take his disciples with him and he'll step into this woman or into this little girl's room and he'll say, Talia Kohan, which means little girl, rise. And there he will breathe life back into her body and she will rise. Miracles, signs and wonders. People want to know who Jesus is. They want to experience what Jesus is all about. And we're going to pick up a part of that here in Matthew chapter 9. And we're going to read verses 27 through 34 together. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Matthew 9, beginning in verse 27. After Jesus left the, the girl's home, the synagogue ruler Jairus, who was famous in his community, after Jesus left the girl's home, two blind men followed along behind him shouting, Son of David, have mercy on us. They went right into the house where he was staying and Jesus asked them, do you believe that I I can make you see? This is significant. Several things here. Number one, how did they know where to find Jesus? Hold on to that question because we're going to answer it collectively. Number two, Matthew's gospel records it most. But they say, son of David. What do they mean by son of David? Son of David. Why not Jesus? Why not Jesus of Nazareth? Why not rabbi or teacher? Why son of David? 
Well, if you look at the beginning of the gospel of Matthew, if you flip back over just a few pages to Matthew chapter 1, it reads a chronology beginning in verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers, and so on and so forth. And it goes on to tell the story of a lineage, a lineage which includes David, which is prophecy fulfilled. What they are saying is actually identical, or it's identity attribution, rather. It's identity attribution. They are not just saying Jesus or Jesus of Nazareth or Rabbi. They are saying, you are promised fulfilled. You are prophecy here among us now. We believe that you are Emmanuel, God with us, the Messiah, the one that was foretold about that is now here in body. You are the son of David. This is critical for their community. This is not just some radical teacher with some new age teaching or some new ways of thinking. This Identity attribution paints a picture, tells a story, and builds a foundation on which Jesus' ministry will continue to build for the next three years. These men come and they say, Son of David, have mercy on us. I would offer to you that often the best prayer we could ever pray is simply, God, have mercy on us. These men were utterly dependent on people in their community, and they were almost always overlooked. They would rely on the good graces of their family and any friends that they had on one another sharing plight together and on any medical professionals that would be there to offer some semblance of help. But on the by and large... According to societal norms, they had nothing to contribute. Therefore, they did not feel valued. They could not work. They could not provide like others in that community. And they felt like outsiders and outcasts. And you read about many stories like these men. They come with desperation in their voices. Son of David, have mercy on us. If you won't, who will? We rely on alms and generosity of others. And and now, Lord, we're relying on you to have mercy, to demonstrate mercy to us and for us on our behalf. And listen listen to the courage that it takes these men to further encounter Jesus. They did not stop in the streets. They did not stop in the streets. Christian, there is something about perseverance that can be learned in this story that we don't stop in the streets. When opposition comes, we don't stop in the streets. When failure happens, we don't stop in the streets. It says, verse 28, these blind men went right into the house where he was staying. They invited themselves in. This is a house that is likely foreign to them. And so they're, 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 they're using their hands to, to, to feel their way into the home. And there are a bunch of onlookers wondering what in the world is going on? What are they doing? And Jesus asks them this question. He says, do you believe that I can make you see? Do you trust? Do you have faith that I can make you see? Yes, Lord, they told him. We do. 
Ask yourself two questions. Number one, how did these guys know where to find Jesus if they couldn't see him coming? And number two, what evidence did they have that would give them the confidence in Christ? Had they had any encounter with Jesus up until that point, there is no evidence that would tell us that they had. So what confidence do they have in Christ? Where does their confidence come from? Do you believe that I can make you see? Yes, we do, they declared, with conviction, with strong conviction. Where did that come from? If not from themselves, could it be that it came from the power of others in their lives? Let's continue to investigate. Verse 29, then he, Jesus, touched their eyes and he said, because of your faith, it will happen. In some translations, it says, based on the apportionment of your faith, it is so. Based on the apportionment of your faith, it is so. Because of your faith, it will happen. I want to ask you a question this morning, and I want you to give strong consideration to this question. If your lives in total were to reflect your faith in Jesus entirely, what would it say about your relationships, your finances, your trust in others, the church? What does the way you believe about Jesus say about you? How does it inform how you live? I'm, I've got to be really honest with you that this question is pretty intimidating for me. I believe, yet help my unbelief, is what the Apostle Paul said, and I often find myself there in that moment and in that space. Anybody else? Lord, I believe, yet help my unbelief. When I think about this question, you will receive based on the amount of faith you have. That's intimidating. Jesus says, you know what, you're healed because of your faith. What does the amount of faith you have say about the way you live your life? What does it say about your relationships? About how you spend your time? About how you spend your money? About the way you talk? How much would things in your life be different if your faith looked different, if your faith was different. I can't answer that for you. I just know that it is a, a question that creates a gross heaviness in my heart when I have to answer the question, do I have that kind of faith? Do I have that kind of faith? These guys, they had run out of options. What more was there? Do you know the greatest affront to our faith today is our American culture? If Jesus doesn't show up, we'll figure it out on our own. We've got options. Francis Chan, when asked about the difference of praying and exercising faith in Western civilization versus collective culture around the world that he had experienced, third world living. What was the difference between what he had experienced in China or in Africa compared to the U.S.? Francis Chan said, 
Here, we pray like we have options. God, it would be awesome if you did this for me, but if you don't, I'll figure it out. There, they pray, God, if you don't show up, I'm finished. What does your faith represent in how you live your life? Do you pray like your marriage depends on it? Do you pray like your finances depend on it? Do you pray like your health depends on it? Do you pray like your reputation depends on it? Do you pray like your faith depends on it? Or do you depend on what you can do based on your own strength and your own merit? Based on your faith, you are healed. That's what Jesus says. That's what Jesus says. Because of your faith, it will happen. In verse 30. Then their eyes were opened and they could see. Jesus sternly warned them, don't tell anyone about this. But instead they went out and spread this fame all over the region. Anybody have kids like this? Like when I read this, if I'm honest with you, I'm moderately annoyed. Because what I know in how the story ends is that this is direct disobedience to Jesus Christ. Don't go tell anybody. And they go and tell everybody. It says that their fame, that Jesus' fame spread throughout the region. It wasn't like they just went and told a couple people. They told everybody. But before we are quick to judgment, please take a journey with me 2,000 years into the scene of this story. And let's look at why. Number one, why does Jesus say this? He says this multiple times. Is it because he's embarrassed? Is it because he's ashamed? Is it because he's afraid? No. How do we know that that's not the case? Because what happens when he heals the leper? What does he tell the leper to do? He tells the leper, go present yourself to the high priest so that you can go through the ceremony of cleansing and be restored to community. Jesus says, go show them that you're no longer diseased. So it's clear that Jesus doesn't have a problem with miracles, signs, or wonders, or even sharing that information with others. So what's the purpose then here in Jesus' early ministry? Friends, as I do a a parallel study of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as I look at when Jesus says this and why Jesus says this, and as I read commentaries on it, the best that I've read or can come up with is that it was a matter of motivation. Jesus did not want to become the proverbial genie in a bottle where you come to me and make your wishes and I, and I grant you your wish or your desire. He wanted their motivation to be an encounter, not of religion, but a relationship. Not of a moment, but a matter of the heart. So when Jesus says, don't go tell anybody, he's saying, I want them to come for the right reasons, with the right motivation at hand. And these guys then, they go off and they tell everybody, Can we all be honest that, number one, it would be kind of hard not to. These guys, to find Jesus, would have had to be led to Jesus because they've been born, likely from, or born blind, likely. They've been blind, but from birth, likely born that way, is what I just said. (laughs) Y'all ever, y'all ever talk faster than your head can keep up? Story of my life. I don't need a big amen there. I'll tell you when, I'll tell you when to amen. Peanut gallery. These men had likely been born blind from birth and would have had to be assisted to see Jesus. They would have had to rely on others to help them encounter Jesus. 
Otherwise, how else would they have known? So now, as they're walking home, they don't have their cane to assist them. They don't have their service dog leading them. They are not draped to an individual in front of them on their shoulder carrying them. And they are not being taken by the hand and led home. They are walking, likely the two of them, having a conversation about everything. That, what, what is that? What, what is that? Oh, that's what that smell is. That's what they've been feeding me? Can you imagine? And everybody that is watching these men that are known in their community are walking by going, now wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute hold, hold on, hold on. Aren't though, isn't that, doesn't he, isn't he related to, weren't they just blind? Does it even seem realistic for Jesus to say, don't go tell anybody? Let me bring it home a little more closely. Ladies, I don't know about you. But something happened when Stacy and I got engaged. She became left-handed. She ate with her left hand. She introduced herself with her left hand. She began to write with her left hand. In other words, she was so excited about sharing this moment in her life that she wanted everyone to see her ring. That told a story. Hey, this guy asked me to to marry him, and I'm stupid enough to have said, yes, look. Or how about a baby? (laughs) Did good, guys. I have a few of them. Never did I have a baby just to, to, to hide away. All of a sudden... I mean, I, I literally, I, it's like I, I walk like Frankenstein everywhere I went. Look at my baby. <laughs> Look, looks just like me. <laughs> when you're excited about something that has transformed your life, you want to share it with others naturally. That's a real thing. And so before we're quick to judge, Jesus told you not to go share with anybody. And then we're like, well, geez, you guys are ignorant. You went and shared it anyway. Well, number one, how could they not? And number two, they, they allowed their enthusiasm to get in front of the, this instruction in the, in the moment. Culturally, they didn't understand what, what he was saying. Jesus says, don't tell anybody about this. But instead, they went and told everybody. And as they went out and spread fame all over the region, they went out. Hold on to that. They went out and they spread fame. Hold on to that. That is so critical from where you're sitting right now to where you need to go this afternoon and here after. Hold on to that. That statement, they went out and spread his fame all over the region, has everything to do with the power of one another. Everything to do with the power of one another. In verse 32, when these men left, a demon-possessed man who couldn't speak was brought to Jesus. Friends, if I could sit with you in your seat and use a writing utensil, I would circle the word brought. I would circle the word brought for you. That is crucial for our responsibility where the power of one another is concerned. A man who couldn't speak because he was demon-possessed was brought to Jesus. How did, how did he know to come to Jesus? If he was unable to speak, 
unless he was like fluent in GSL, Greek Sign Language, or LSL, Latin Sign Language. Don't know that that was even a thing, unless he could write. And let's talk about possession first. Where demonic presence is concerned, there's three things. There's oppression, possession, and depression. Oppression and depression are felt. Possession is realized. He had been possessed. Demon possession impacts and influences our faculties, the way we think, the way we speak, the way we present our bodies, the way we present ourselves. This man physically was being restrained and kept from speaking because of the demon that was realized in his body. How could he tell his friends what he wanted? How did he know about Jesus? How did this man know to come to Jesus? He wasn't led by the demon. It says that his friends brought him to Jesus. So Jesus cast out the demon and then, and then, and then, not before, but at that moment, the man began to speak. And the crowds were amazed. Nothing like this has ever happened in Israel, they exclaimed. In other words, we've never seen anything like this. We've never heard anything like this. We've never experienced anything like this before. This is incredible. The miracles, the signs, the wonders, this is amazing. But, don't you love big butts in the Bible? But the Pharisees said, he can cast out demons because he is empowered by the prince of demons. What? Jesus in another gospel says, why would a demon cast out himself out of him? What? Do the basic math. That doesn't make sense. What is it about What is it about people who have to superimpose their baggage on you? I mean, Paul wrote an entire letter to the church in Galatia, the region in Galatia. Lystra, Derbe, Antioch of Pisidia, Iconium. These four churches that he had planted where Judaizers, these religious leaders, were telling the community, these Gentiles and these Jews that have converted to follow Jesus, they had moved from religion into a relationship, and they're saying, look, Jesus is okay, but he's not the Talmud. You can have Jesus as long as you have the 613 rules and regulations, as long as you recognize the the festivals and the ceremonies, as long as you practice religion the way that we want you to practice religion, the way that we have for centuries practiced religion. You can have Jesus so long as you abide by our expectations. When Jesus comes in and he introduces himself and he introduces people to a right relationship rather than a religious moment, these men, rather than uh, celebrating in their excitement, they begin to scoff, they begin to mock, they begin to murmur. Well, clearly he's doing this because he's demon-possessed. Anything good that was come out of him, is, is it couldn't be from God. It has to be from an outside source, they say. And they mock Jesus. These men, these men, all they know, these two blind men and this demon-possessed man, was that before Jesus and after Jesus are vastly different. 
that when they encountered Jesus, their lives were changed forever. So I want to ask you a question. How should we respond to this? I think there's at least three things that we can learn from this story about the power of one another. And the first has to do with encouragement. Encouragement. Our responsibility to one another is to encourage one another. And when we're encouraged by others, it will likely lead us to want to experience, which we'll talk about in just a moment, Jesus all the more. These men, I imagine they had to have been encouraged to come and present themselves before Jesus. Can you imagine how humiliating that must have been in this moment to be blind and to put yourself out there in front of everybody, in front of everybody, and saying, Son of David, have mercy on us? They would have had to be encouraged to come to Christ for this encounter. And, and what, about, what about the man who was mute because he was demon-possessed? He had no way of clearly communicating that we can tell that he wanted to go and meet Jesus. He had to be encouraged by his friends, those that brought him to Jesus. How many of you know this morning that there is power in one another through encouragement? Encourage each other, encouraging each other in, in seasons that are really high. Celebrating the wins. Yes, awesome. This is amazing. As well as encouraging others in the valleys where things are dark and seem desperate. Encouraging others. We are called to encourage each other. Romans 1.12 says that is that you and I may be mutually encouraged by one another's faith. We are called to encourage each other and we are called to the power of one another. We're called to encourage each other. The second thing that I see in this story that we're called to is we're called to not only share our encouragement, we're called to share our experiences. How did these men know to, to come and find Jesus? It says that his fame was spreading throughout the region, which means that there had to have been people sharing their experience with Jesus to others. And they are relying on the credibility of their friends and their friends' experiences to lead them to Jesus. To say, look, I don't know all that you're going through, but I can tell you what I've experienced. This is where I was and this is where I am. This is who I was and this is who I am. This has been my experience as I walked away from religion into a right relationship with Jesus, as I moved into an encounter with Christ. This has been my experience physically and emotionally and spiritually and relationally. This has been my experience. The power of one another is critical when you consider how we're called to share our experiences with each other. Can I tell you this morning, can I confess to you this morning that over the last three years of my life, from age 38 to 41, that I am who I am today and I am where I am at today 
because of the encouragement and because of the experience of many of you in this room that you've shared with me. Many of you have seemingly countlessly invested in my life based on your experience with Jesus and your experience with life and your encouragement. I would argue that I am the father that I am today because of your encouragement and your experience in many ways, and that I am the pastor that I am today because of many of, yours, uh, many of your encouragements and experiences, and I am the, the pastor that I am today because of your encouragement and your experiences. I am better today than I was three years ago because of you, because of many of you and how you've invested in my life. And I would hope in kind that I could offer that to, to this church, and you might agree that maybe we're just a little bit better over the last three years because of God using Andrew at our church. We need each other. We are better together, friends. We are better together. And it begins with us being willing to encourage one another and to share our experiences. But there's a third component, and it is our faith. It's our faith. Sometimes, sometimes the best we can hope for is to be led to Jesus, not by our own faith, but by the faith of others. Let me explain. I stand here today on the heels of Bob and Shauna Anderson, whose faith preceded my salvation. You, most of you, are aware of my story. But what you may not be aware of is that before adoption, Bob Anderson, my dad, was at the Kingdome, which is where the Mariners and the Seattle Seahawks used to play before they demolished the Kingdome and built two individual structures for the Mariners and the Seahawks. And he was there at a Promise Keepers event. And while he was at a Promise Keepers event, having prayed for 16 years for me, he felt that he received a word from the Lord, a word that he was going to have an opportunity to do something significant in my life. And he went home to Oregon City and he shared this word with his wife, Shauna Anderson. In a matter of weeks, I was at their front door, a high school dropout, a known gang affiliate who was stealing cars and selling drugs and living the most depraved life that you could muster up in your imagination. And in that moment, he said, do you want to come and live here? Do you want to come and be a part of our family? Not knowing that I would say yes, not knowing that I was ready or willing to give up my life on the streets, for structure and for school. I had been to four high schools and dropped out two weeks into my sophomore year. Why would I willingly go back into that? And yet in that moment, I received the invitation to come and be a part of their family. And it was their faith in Jesus and their obedience to what God was calling them to that led me to an encounter with Christ. Through adoption, they began to take me to church. They didn't invite me. They took me. (laughs) It was their faith that enabled my encounter with Christ. If I didn't have them in my life, it's more than likely that I wouldn't be standing before you today. The power of what God did through Bob and Shauna Anderson has changed the trajectory of my life and seemingly countless others. Those that I've been privileged to share my experiences with and to share my encouragement with and to share my faith with. We are called, we are called to share our experiences, to share our encounters, to share our encouragement, to share our faith with others. What would happen 
if we took Jesus, if we took Jesus literally, if we took Jesus at his word when he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And to be a witness means you're sharing encouragement and you're sharing your own experiences and you're sharing your faith. What would happen if we took Jesus literally and at his word, when he says, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and in the name of the Son and in the name of the Holy Spirit and teach them to obey all these things I've commanded you and surely I am with you always to the end of the ages. What would happen if we took Jesus at his word and we were willing We were willing to allow God to use us to be the power of one another for someone else. To share our encouragement, our experiences, and our faith with others. When I think back to the story, to Greg Force, the illustration that I offered to you as we started, I think back to a 10-year-old little boy. A 10-year-old little boy. A 10-year-old little boy who was sitting at home devoid of a television, listening to as much as he could on the radio with his three brothers and his mother, when a knock at the door came, an invitation and an opportunity for him to change the trajectory of lives forever. And he took advantage of that opportunity and he went and he said, how can I help? And his dad said, I need you to take this grease and I need you to reach your hand in there as far as you can. And I need you to surround that bearing, cover it, take it like Play-Doh and just mush it in there. The kid, I don't think, do you think he at 10 years old understood the levity? How cool is that? I get to play with grease. I'm always getting yelled at for touching the grease because then I end up touching mom's couch and now here I am. He made himself available. He responded. There is power in one another. And the greatest thing that you can do this morning is respond to what Jesus has and is calling you to. You don't have to pray, God, do you want to use me? Yes. God, do you want me to share my testimony? You will be my witnesses. God, would you you create an opportunity, a moment? Yes, I'm creating multiple moments for you every day for you to live out your life of salvation through how you encourage others and through how you share your experiences and through how you lead others to faith. Church, I want to ask you, I want to implore you, I want to strongly encourage you this morning to consider asking and answering this question. Who has God put in your path that you are being led to share your encouragement, your experiences, and your faith with? May you stand in the courage of Christ and be the power of one another to someone today.